What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. From aloe vera to Zamiococcus zamifolia, this week we're talking about botanical Latin. This is On The Ledge Podcast and I am your leafy host, Jane Perrone. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're an old hand, well, draw up a seat, settle down and enjoy the show. We'll be finding out why botanical Latin matters, getting to grips with the nitty gritty of taxonomy from genus to cultivar, And I'll also be answering a question about a houseplant that thinks it's a pond plant. A particularly warm welcome to Abigail and Erin, who have become ledge ends. These are the wonderful supporters who have donated $5 a month or more to keep on the ledge, pushing out brand new leaves and romping all over your shelves or indeed ledges. If you want to find out how to become a regular supporter of On The Ledge, visit the show notes at janeperone.com. Tylacodon wallichii. Drosera sesilifolia. Drosera oblata. This is me trying to read the Latin names of a number of cacti and succulents. As you can hear, it's not the easiest of languages to master. You may be wondering why we bother in the first place and don't just stick to the common names of these plants, which are often rather poetic and lovely. And let's face it, a darn sight easier to say. Yep, that last one was a particular doozy. The great thing about botanical Latin is it is exactly the same wherever you are in the world. Whereas common names for plants vary according to country and sometimes even regions within a country. For instance, Codeum variegatum, that brightly coloured foliage plant that loves to drop its leaves, is variously known as Croton, Joseph's Coat and even South Sea Laurel. While our old favourite Monstra Deliciosa, has many different names from Swiss cheese plant, ceramon, custard plant, fruit salad plant, Mexican breadfruit, and of course, monstera, or should I say monstera. Worse than that, many names are duplicated across more than one species. So the money plant could mean Crassula ovata, Pachyra aquatica, or Epipremnum pinnatum. And let's not get started on the number of indoor plants with ivy in their common names. You want me to go there? Okay, let me just take off the top of my head. English ivy, Canary Island ivy, German ivy, Indian ivy, ground ivy, ivy peperomia, ivy tree, 
Uh, ivy leaf geranium. I'm running out of ivies now, but you see what I mean. And once you understand the value of botanical Latin, it's not long before you start to really appreciate the stories and the colour that exists in many of the names we love. Those of you who've got a copy of the legendary Dr. David Hesseon's Houseplant Expert, specifically the gold-plated edition with the red and gold cover, will be able to turn to Chapter 9 and take a look at his excellent chapter on the naming of indoor plants, which gives a really nice insight into the meanings behind many of the plant names we know. So, for example, aloe is Greek for bitter because of the plant's bitter sap. And asparagus is Greek for to rip, which any of you who've had one of those very thorny asparagus ferns will know all about. And oxalis is Greek for sour because the leaves of the oxalis or purple shamrock have a sour flavour. Although, interestingly enough, they are edible in small quantities. You don't want to eat a ton of them because they do contain oxalic acid, but they're actually quite tasty on some salad. Lots of houseplants are named after famous people as well. I've mentioned before the Smithiantha, which was named after Matilda Smith, the English botanical illustrator, and Tradescantia, named after the famous 17th century gardener, John Tradescant. There's a lot of romance and history to be found in all these names. But let's just step back a moment and ask the question, why two names? Most houseplant names, as we know, are divided into two sections. We've got Pilea, and then Peperomioides, Alo, and then Vera. What does it all mean? It works much in the same way that uh, surnames or family names and then given names or first names work too, in, just in reverse order from the way we usually do things in the English-speaking world. Meet Daniel Sparler from Seattle, Washington. He's a retired high school teacher and a self-confessed plant nerd who now teaches botanical Latin. For example, my last name is Sparler, and that would be the equivalent of the genus, or in Latin, genus. That's the first of the names you see in the in the in the binomial or two name system, the one that's capitalized, uh, that would be, for example, Heliboros, or would be a, a, a genus there, and then the the one that comes after that is the species name or the specific epithet. That means which one of all the Heliboros, and there are many many different different uh, uh, varieties there. Which one is this particular one? And that would be the equivalent of my first name, Daniel. I have two brothers. And so there would be Sparler Joel, Sparler Stephen, but then I am Sparler Daniel. So that would be genus and species, or in Latin, genus and species. So that's the binomial, the two-name system that we use to classify plants. But what about the bit that comes after those two plant names, usually in single quote marks, tacked on the end? I'm thinking of Peperomia polybotria raindrop, or Monstra deliciosa Thai constellation. Back to Daniel to explain. Those refer to things that humans have somehow interfered with, either intentionally or accidentally, to come up with something called a cultivar. And that's something that is notably different from uh, the straight natural genus and species. And those would be indicated inside single quotation marks and would be capitalized. For example, there's a beautiful uh, shrub that was a hybrid between a, a spice bush native to eastern North America called Calicanthus floridus and one native to China called Calicanthus chinensis. And it's produced a lot of beautiful hybrids that are now called Calicanthus X, which indicates a cross. And then the name Aphrodite, another one's called Venus. So those are very fragrant and very showy. 
And that name Aphrodite would then be in single quotation marks and capitalized. Venus would be the same way. And those are not treated as Latin. Those can be anything from a person's name to some clever phrase you've thought up. Uh, And they can be registered, uh, but they're not supposed to to work grammatically as Latin the way the name of the genus and the species do. Okay, so I hope that's clear so far. But the thing that might be nagging at your mind is just how the heck we pronounce all of these different and sometimes slightly complicated names. One of the oddities of botanical Latin is a lot of it isn't actually Latin. It's words from other languages, predominantly Greek, but also Japanese, Portuguese, Malay, Arabic and many other languages. Personally, it can take me right back to those excruciating language lessons in school where I really didn't know what was going on or how to say anything. And the teacher picks on you and starts trying to have a conversation with you. But as with most things in life, if you give it a go and say things confidently, most people will give you the benefit of the doubt. That's the approach that John Wright takes. He's a naturalist and field mycologist who spends a lot of his time out in the field looking at fungi. But he's also the author of one of my favourite books about Latin names, The Naming of the Shrew. I say if you are in any doubt, just say it very clearly and very loudly. And uh, and uh, people will think, oh, maybe I've been getting it wrong all these years. I remember years ago, I went to uh, Italy or with the British Mycological Society on a, uh, a two-week truffle hunt, went all the way around Italy. We were with uh, Professor Pagioni, who is the tuba, the truffle expert in Italy, um, probably in the world. And, uh, and I, said, um, I said to him, well, will we see any, any tuber Easterbum today? We were in northern Italy. And uh, it's the most common of all the truffles. And uh, he said, uh, uh, what you, sorry? Uh, I said, tuber Easterbum, you know, the the, the common truffle or summer truffle uh, tuberistivum tuberin. eventually he said ah tuberistivum and <laughs> I, I think I was more ac- accurate according to the rules than him but of course he was, a, he was an Italian guy so he was uh, uh, the heir to Rome the heir to Cicero and uh, perhaps he knew better than me but uh, uh, it, it took a while to understand but we, we got there in the end While there is really no wrong way to say a Latin name, provided that you're understood, there are a few guidelines you can follow to get as close as possible to the classical Latin. Here's Daniel again. Well, you know, Latin was the parent language to Spanish and Italian. Uh, Most clearly, French and Portuguese drifted a little bit further in in their pronunciation. But if you know how to pronounce Italian or Spanish vowels, you've got it made. Uh, The vowels are pure, they're crisp, they don't glide or float away the way uh, English vowels often do, especially in the part of the United States where I come from, the South. The vowels are crisp, a, e, i, o, u, and it doesn't vary. It's, it's, It's always that way. There are long and short vowels in Latin, but a long vowel is just twice, you hold it twice as long as a short vowel. And I tell people who uh, know music a little bit, it's a little bit like musical notation, that a short vowel in Latin is about the length of a quarter note in music. And a long vowel in Latin is about the length of a half note. Just hold it out twice as long. A, a, e, 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 o, o, u, u. And that helps a lot. You've got to grips with genus and species, and you've got a rough idea of how to pronounce it. And then one day you come along and realise that your Latin name has changed. So while you may have frequently heard me referring to Senecio Rolianus, 
Yes, it is Rolianus. I checked with Daniel in the show many times. I recently discovered that this plant has actually changed genus and is now known as Curio Rolianus. Surely botanical Latin is confusing enough without these added complications. Well, the reality is that just like every other part of science, taxonomy, the science of naming plants, is constantly advancing and things like DNA research is constantly throwing up new information that leads taxonomists to put plants in different groups. And I have to say, for those of us who've known Latin names for many years, there's sometimes a real sadness to see certain names go. I used to love the Parla Palms Latin name Neanthibella. It was one of the first Latin names I learned, and I'm never quite going to come to terms with calling it Cameodoria elegans, but I'll live with it. Because, as John Wright explains, there are many reasons why this happens. People re-describe something and, and, and make up a new name, which is accepted uh, for a while, and then it's lost again. We have to go back to the old name. Really, it's a matter of understanding. Uh, the understanding of the place of a species uh, within the, uh, the tree of life, shall we say. Like learning and translating any language, getting to grips with botanical Latin is very much a case of decoding the words that you're reading. And unlike any code, once you understand one element, you can apply that to all of your future understanding. For example, when you know that tricolour simply means three colours, then you know that whenever you see that in a plant name, be it Neoregelia carolinii tricolour or Dracaena marginata tricolour, you're probably looking at a pretty colourful foliage plant. And volubilis? Well, that means twining. So Boea volubilis, the climbing onion, that very strange and unusual plant that grows from a strange onion-like bulb, is indeed a twining plant, as is Jasminum volubile, which is climbing jasmine. One of the particularly useful lists to know is Latin colour names. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. As Daniel explains, get a list of Latin Latin color terms, and that can tell you so much there. And some of them will make will remind you of things that you know about in terms of, for example, uh, nieves, uh, snow white, uh, candidus, pure white, lactios, milky white, and of course it ends in us if it's modifying a masculine genus, and a or the letter a if it's modifying a, a, a feminine genus, or um if it's modifying a neuter genus. So those things knowing. To recognize us, a, or um as endings are all talking about the same thing. Uh, but it's just, it, as again, it goes back to that grammatical gender question there. Purpureus isn't too hard, purple. Uh, Glaucus, as in grayish. Uh, Cinnabarinus, scarlet, like you can think of cinnamon a little bit there. Ruber, that looks a little bit like red, common red. Roseos is pretty easy, kind of a pale pink. Uh, so the color ones are, are a lot of fun, and then uh, those are easier to remember. You can remember them in groups. Uh, others 
So there are a number of uh, genera or genus names that are named for uh, mythological uh, deities. For example, what we call the irises or iris, uh, and and others. The Daphne is another one. Uh, Adonis, anemone. Those are all names from mythology that could help you. Paris is another one. Uh, Narcissus, of course. And those are, in addition to being botanical names, are things that we can recognize from other from other areas of our lives. And there are some more modern references too. There's a Nepenthes named after the British comedian Bill Bailey. And then, of course, there's Nepenthes attenburii, or Attenborough's pitcher plant, named after the wonderful broadcaster and naturalist Sir David Attenborough. Now, this isn't actually a plant, but I couldn't resist including John Wright's little anecdote about another Latin name dedicated to one of the most famous women in the world. Uh, oh, well, my, my absolute favourite is uh, Scaptia Beyoncei. Um, so if you become, if you become uh, as famous as Beyonce, uh, then you might have something named after yourself. Uh, actually, it's a, bit, it's a very appropriate name because it's actually a fly, Scaptia in the genus Scaptia. And, uh, uh, and it is, it, like Beyonce, and certainly one of the photographs I've seen of her, has a perfectly round and golden rear end. You see, taxonomists do have a sense of humour after all. If I was Beyonce, I'd be really happy to have that fly named after me. I really hope this insight into botanical Latin has given you a bit of a taste for the fascinating stuff that you can learn from daring to delve into this world. Because at a time when the world is fracturing into warring factions all over the place, there is something rather wonderful about this universal language of plants. Daniel Sparler agrees. I think what uh, botanists and those who love plants and love names of things need to realize is that it's a way to build bridges around the world. And now that there's so many walls going up everywhere, I mean, you're, you're dealing with Brexit. We're dealing with a president who wants to build a 2,000-mile wall with our neighbors. That what we can do with using botanical Latin is help to unite the world of plant lovers and plant growers and to understand that also we need to respect the indigenous cultures that many of these plants come from, and some of the botanical names actually incorporate those into them. I don't know if you're a fan of quinoa, and you know, that's part of the botanical name of the plant. And quinoa was the name that uh, the the descendants of the Incas, the Quechua speakers, uh, used for that. So it's the genus name is Chenoporium, which means goosefoot, because some of the related plants actually have leaves that look like a goose's foot. But the specific name, the botanical name, is is Chenoporium quinoa. So there's an example of honoring a native culture in that. And then just studying the plants that we grow, often the tropical plants or the house plants that, that you're sharing with your viewers are from areas that were collected by Europeans and then brought back. Uh, and by learning the botanical names, sometimes we can see, well, does the name of this plant honor the place where it came from? Or was it named for some European collector? Like Lady Clivia, Lady Clivia lucked out and got that, the... Uh, uh, Strelitzia reginae, the so-called bird of paradise, also from South Africa, uh, was named for uh, the George III's queen, who was uh, Charlotte von Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Uh, of course, that German house of Hanover used to be before they changed their name after World War I to Windsor, that you still have. Uh, and that was named for her as well. And an interesting thing, a parallel there, is that the same queen, uh, George III's queen, was named 
in on the uh, largest city in the state of North Carolina, a state with 10 million people. There's the city of Charlotte, named after her. It's in the county of Mecklenburg, which was her home, part of her home uh, uh, prefix and, and her noble name there. So Charlotte, Mecklenburg. And it was being named at the same time that the uh, Strelitzia, the bird of paradise, was being brought from what is now South Africa to Britain. Uh, so sometimes these plant names were meant to curry favor with royalty, maybe to, to get a, a higher position. But we should be seeing that a cult of our names of those plants. Now, today, new varieties that are being developed in Kirstenbosch Garden outside of Cape Town, for example, are being named for more uh, noble or suitable designees. A new yellow version of that bird of paradise is called Mandela's Gold, for example. And that would be in single quotation marks as a cult of our name. So, again, names can tell us so much about, that's good about ourselves, so much that's actually a sad part of history that we don't want to repeat but somehow need to honor. I, so when you ask what's in a name, there's an awful lot in the names that, that can help us in our daily lives, I think. episode to find out more about botanical latin do check out my show notes at janeperone.com for loads of great resources including john wright's book the taming of the shrew lorraine harrison's book rhs latin for gardeners and the wonderful book by anna paywood on the history of botanical naming called searching for order and now it's time for question of the week this week's Question comes from Gabriella. Hi, Gabriella. She wants to know how to look after a plant that she's just got hold of, which was not very helpfully solved with no identification at all. Gabriella thinks she's worked out that this plant is Juncus effusus spiralis. Just in case you haven't seen this plant, the spiralis part of the name is really rather accurate. The stems look a bit like chive stems, I suppose, but they are crazily corkscrewing, uh, hence the common name corkscrew rush. And it looks a little bit like my hair when I get up on a morning and it's all over the place, basically, with these green corkscrew stems heading out from the main plant in all possible directions. Some people love it and describe it as an oddity that's something to really enjoy in the garden, but it's not for everybody. In fact, I can see really why it makes a better houseplant visually than an outdoor plant, because you can really get up close and appreciate the shape and form of those corkscrew leaves. But she's feeling a bit puzzled because after looking online, some websites say this plant's fully hardy. And so she's feeling a little bit guilty about growing it indoors. And she's also seen advice saying that it's happy growing with no drainage and even in standing water. So she asks, have you grown it and can you offer any advice? I love the look of it, she adds. Well, Gabriella, I have grown this plant, uh, but only in the garden before. It didn't do particularly well for me because my soil was too dry because, yes, this this is a marginal or a pond plant that likes to be sat in a lot of water. It's a spiral form of what's known as soft rush, Juncus effusus. 
which is a native that lives in many parts of the world, including the UK. So this, I guess, relates back to the question we had a few weeks ago about native plants as houseplants. But interestingly, although this is often sold as a houseplant, I looked it up in most of the houseplant books I own. There's quite a few of them, as you can imagine, and I couldn't find it referenced in a single one as a houseplant. This does sometimes happen. Sometimes sellers and breeders do market stuff in a different way than you might expect expect and so plants that are popular and sold very frequently as houseplants don't actually appear in any of the books. But will this one thrive as a houseplant? It is fully hardy. Although some of the sites I looked at disagreed, um, I'm going with the RHS and a few other reliable sources on this that indicate this plant is fully hardy in the UK. By the way, if you don't know what fully hardy means, don't worry, it just means that the plant will survive freezing temperatures. That doesn't mean that it won't be happy with room temperatures in the average indoor setting, though. The main requirement for this plant, though, is that unlike the advice I give for almost every other houseplant you can mention, you need to keep this one really moist. So don't let the potting mix dry out between waterings. Keep that soil moist, if not seriously damp. Not surprisingly, it does well in a pot with no drainage holes. If some of the stems go brown, which they may do, particularly over winter, you can just snip those down to the base and you should get new growth in the springtime. Indoors, it's not really bothered about the temperature much at all. It will be fine up to average room temperatures of, say, 20 to 24 centigrade. That's up to 75 Fahrenheit. But it also won't be bothered about an unheated room or a porch or the like and give it a reasonable amount of light don't chuck it in the darkest corner and either way it should be fine. If your plant does start looking unhappy then do think about giving it a spell outside in the summer where it will no doubt do really well. Interestingly there is an improved version of Juncus effusus spiralis known as Juncus effusus unicorn which is developed by the University of British Columbia Botanical Gardens and the idea with this one is that it's just got extra spirally leaves if that's the kind of look you're going for. In summary Gabriella I'd give this a go indoors by all means particularly if you're a bit overzealous with the watering can. Other plants that also like the wet approach indoors include the umbrella plant, uh, that's Cyprus diffusus, and the papyrus, Cyprus papyrus, which are also boggy and swampy plants and are worth considering if you find that you kill most other plants by overwatering. So see how you go, Gabriella. If this plant starts looking sad, pop it outside and see how it does. It's worth noting that you don't need to be spraying this one all the time with a mister to keep humidity up because although it likes it wet around the roots, it isn't that bothered by humidity levels in the air. So that's more good news about the corkscrew rush. If you've got a question for On The Ledge podcast, drop me a line. On the ledge podcast at gmail.com is the most reliable way to get hold of me. Send pictures and as much information as you can about your plant and I will do my damnedest to help. That brings episode 81 of On The Ledge to a close and I hope you've enjoyed the episode. 
For if I may quote Thomas Jefferson, there is not a sprig of grass that shoots uninteresting to me. There's something new to learn every time we come to look at a houseplant. And that's what makes it such a fun hobby. I'll be back next week for more foliage frolics. See you then. Bye-bye. you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward all licensed under Creative Commons see my website janeperone.com for details